You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health featuring Mark Lipsitch, professor of epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, April 30th. Welcome, everyone. Looks like a more a smaller group today, which is perhaps a sign that there's uh, better communication coming from other sources, which would be great because that's one of the reasons we do these. But uh, I'm going to just uh, open it up immediately to questions. I don't have any um, any uh, specific uh, topics that I wanted to cover, so I will take questions immediately. Great. Thank you, Dr. Lipsitch. First question. Thank you. Thanks very much, and thank you for doing this so consistently. Um, I'm wondering to what extent you're following the Massachusetts numbers and what we should make of the dynamics that we're seeing. Um, I have to go on the air very early tomorrow morning and give kind of a round of the of the week, and I, I can I'm just feeling very frustrated that the numbers are not going down or don't seem to be going down more than they are. And I think I speak for the whole state by saying we're it's hard to have the patience that we need to get through this. What would you say, kind of speaking to just the Massachusetts audience? Yeah, uh, thank you. I think uh, I agree that it's puzzling to see uh, this plateau and. Um, uh, Aaron Carroll wrote a nice article in the New York Times a week or so ago pointing out that that long plateaus are sort of hard to explain in in models, uh, which means that it's hard to give a mechanistic explanation account of why that should be happening. But w although there's been a lot of day-to-day -day variation, the, the sort of moving average seems to be kind of stuck at... Uh, around 2,000 cases or a little less per day. Um, uh, it's a little, I, I agree that that is a difficult situation to explain other than to say that it seems that the reproduction number must be somewhere right around one and being held there and we haven't gotten it down below one. Um, and it's clear that some places can do that uh, and and uh, how we're going to do that, uh, I think, is is an ongoing puzzle. Um, we're not the only ones that are sort of stuck here, uh, or stuck at some some un, uh, unacceptably high level in terms of a level that we would be comfortable reducing uh, reducing our level of social distancing. Um, so I have to admit to a bit of puzzlement myself, uh, and um, I hope that as um, as the use of contact tracing begins to to be possible, that will help. I'm not actually that optimistic. I don't think contact tracing with a thousand or two thousand known cases per day. Uh, is going to be very effective because that means there are an awful lot of unknown cases, and uh, I just don't don't see it as being a, um, by itself a big increment to our control measures. Um, so I think it's uh, when when next my colleague Caroline Bucky is on one of these, I would ask her whether the whether the Massachusetts mobility data is suggestive of um, of uh, sort of uh, less 
less uh, effective social distancing than is seen in some other places. That would be my only real hypothesis for what it is. And I haven't talked to her in a couple of days, so I don't know uh, whether that's the case about Massachusetts. So uh, I wish I could give you a better answer, but I'm also puzzled. Well, it's comforting, at least. I do have one quick follow-up, which is, is there a number that you watch the most? Like, I feel like we've kind of been watching the hospitalization number the most because it's, it's the because we needed to make sure we, we didn't overwhelm the capacity, but that's staying pretty stable. Is there, is there any number, and yet the testing numbers are not very reliable because that depends a lot on how much you test. So what, what number do you watch the most? Yeah, I think it's necessary to watch them all. Uh, as you note, hospitalizations is probably somewhat more reliable, but um, but it's lagged uh, because it takes some time time for people to uh, get sick enough to go to the hospital or to be admitted to the hospital. Um, and so, I try to watch each of the cases, um, uh, each of each of the indicators separately. Um, but you really don't know. Hospitalizations gives you at least five or six days, and maybe more like more than that, depending uh, in terms of lag, depending on how fast the hospitalizations themselves get reported. Thank you. Okay, next question. Hi, Mark. I wondered if you might be uh, able to talk a little bit about the work you've done on developing ways to accelerate vaccine trials ethically. Thank you, yes. Um, so uh, with uh, several colleagues, we have, uh, we have written a proposal that's in, published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. Uh, those colleagues are Muriel, who used to be with us uh, at the School of Public Health, is now at Rutgers, and Peter Smith at the London School of Hygiene. Um, and our proposal is that uh, in order to make more rapid evaluations of how well vaccines work, um, and also evaluations that are that involve immunizing fewer people uh, in the testing phase, we should consider uh, the the use of human challenge controlled human challenge trials in which individuals are given a vaccine or placebo, maybe different vaccines. Uh, there might be multiple arms, and then are deliberately exposed to uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection. Uh, these would be volunteers uh, who were screened not only for uh, truly informed consent, but also for uh, having the lowest possible probability of developing complications if infected, uh, and preferably selected from areas where there are, um, where there are uh, is ongoing transmission anyway, so that their likelihood of being infected would be uh, would be relatively high outside the study. Um, the reason, the rationale for this is that uh, human challenge trials um, typically involve tens to hundreds of individuals rather than the thousands who are involved in classical efficacy trials. Um, uh, I know from discussions with various uh, individuals who are in groups that are trying to plan such efficacy trials that it's a it's quite uncertain where there will be adequate both infrastructure and uh, and incidence of infection at the time of the trial 
to do the trial well. Um, and so the controlled human challenge study has some, some logistical and, and timing benefits potentially. It also uh, in some sense is uh, advantageous because it reduces the number of people who have to be exposed to the vaccine in the initial test testing phase uh, in that, uh, and that's beneficial because uh, as many of you are aware, there is concern with the, with the vaccines against uh, coronaviruses in general, including this one, uh, about the possibility of so-called immune enhancement or disease enhancement by the vaccine, where the vaccine uh, produces an immune response that actually is harmful to the individual once they're exposed. And uh, while we obviously would not ever put a vaccine into trials where we thought that was very likely, uh, we, we can't be sure. And one of the benefits is that uh, of a challenge model is that with tens or hundreds of individuals uh, exposed, if there is a signal of that, you find it out earlier and actually uh, jeopardize fewer people in that way through the trial. Again, that seems that's something we would try in every way to avoid, but, but it is a, a further benefit of the approach. Um, since we wrote that article, uh, there have been several encouraging developments about the possibility of doing that. Uh, there are discussions at the Wellcome Trust, uh, at the World Health Organization, uh, and uh, 35 members of Congress wrote a letter to the FDA, which has prompted discussions within the US government about this idea. Uh, there's been a fair amount of press coverage, and there's also, uh, we didn't, uh, there's also a, um, an effort uh, that we sort of were supportive of, uh, that's, but it's an independent effort um, to evaluate how many people uh, or, or whether there are in fact people who might volunteer for such a trial. Uh, so a group, an independent group set up a website called onedaysooner.org uh, and uh, at the moment, there have been 8,219 volunteers who have gone to that website and said, I would like to be in one of these trials. Um, and obviously, bioethicists worry a lot about uh, the concern uh, that people would be sort of enrolled in a trial like this because they're desperate or because they're, uh, they need money or because they uh, are somehow in a vulnerable position and being exploited. Um, and what's remarkable is that many of the individuals who sign up on here leave comments and they are, uh, they're from all over the world. They're from 52 countries. Uh, they are um, often highly educated people uh, who have a very uh, strong um, altruistic motivation and wish to do this. Um, and one of the things that we write about in the paper is that we ask people, we, we invite people to take medical risks uh, on the behalf of others in many settings. We do that uh, when we ask someone to become a new uh, physician um, who's, who's, who may be treating uh, contagious diseases like this one uh, or emergency medical technician or other type of, uh, type of um, dangerous profession. We also invite people to uh, donate kidneys, which is uh, a medical risk to them for someone else's benefit. Uh, and obviously many kinds of first responders and, and uh, military personnel are 
um, volunteering for the for that risk on behalf of others. And I think uh, our rationale is in part that um, that's a, a form of altruism that we rely on in society to keep our military and our and our healthcare system and other things going, um, and that there's nothing completely different about a research setting where someone might wish to do that. Uh, but obviously there are many ways that we can try to make it as uh, low risk as possible as one would be obliged to do in other settings. So if you're interested, this uh, website onedaysooner.org is really quite remarkable just as a sort of um, social phenomenon that this many people have, have uh, volunteered. Thank you. Next question. Hi, uh, thanks for doing the call. Um, just wanted to know, what are you seeing in the Southern Hemisphere as it approaches its winter period? Uh, is the situation worsening? And um, what might their experience um, show for us up in the US? Will it serve as kind of a preview or offer some lessons for us as we prepare for a second possible wave of the winter? Um, well, the Southern Hemisphere is a big place, as you know, <laughs> it's half the world. Um, uh, and it's quite, variable. So um, Australia and New Zealand seem to have uh, achieved remarkable control of their epidemic, especially New Zealand. Um, uh, and I think what that's shown is that uh, although the, the spread started in the summer, it shows that what that shows is that clearly spread can occur in the summer, um, but also that it was uh, um, caught relatively early and controlled uh, fairly readily. Um, uh, and I think indeed we will learn more, well, so that's Australia and New Zealand. Uh, the, the phenomenon in Sub-Saharan Africa is, uh, is, is uh, something that many people have been discussing the interpretation of, and I think nobody is entirely certain uh, why spread in Sub-Saharan Africa appears to be relatively uh, less severe than in many other places, uh, or than in many places in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, uh, some of the hypotheses are that uh, there were relatively few seeding events, and so it's just taking a longer time to, to reach high levels. Um, and our research group has been doing some work on, on just how many seeding events there might have been, uh, which we're hoping to have out uh, pretty soon. Um, so that's one hypothesis. Another hypothesis is that, uh, is that something about the weather has been reducing uh, transmission. Uh, and a third hypothesis is that, uh, that just the health systems are not, not um, detecting um, the, the cases that actually exist. And I suspect there are aspects of all of those, um, but I think we've certainly learned that the Southern Hemisphere is not all behaving like the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, and what the interpretation of that is, I think remains uh, debatable and, and we really need better evidence. Um, just real quick, does that mean for New Zealand and Australia, because of their efforts now, they they might be in a much better position as the temperatures cool, um, or do they have to work extra hard to avoid 
some kind of relapse if this virus behaves like other diseases? Yeah, I think I think it's likely that there uh, that that as temperatures cool and humidity goes down, um, based on comparisons to other viruses and based on the fact that the other coronaviruses behave a lot like seasonal flu in terms of their timing, uh, we would expect that that they would have more transmission. And by the same token, we can expect a little bit of reduction in transmission in the Northern Hemisphere. My personal view is that the amount of trans, and I think a fairly consensus view, is that the amount of reduction in transmission from changing weather in the Northern Hemisphere is likely to be perhaps noticeable, although hard to disentangle from all the changing control measures, but not, not by itself enough to, uh, to stop transmission in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, I think it's possible, unlikely, but not completely impossible that the mixture of six significant herd immunity in places like New York and the seasonal changes might mean that the next resurgence in New York is considerably milder than uh, in terms of uh, rate of growth than it has been uh, the first time because I think those two factors together might make a significant dent in transmission. But, um, but I think in places that have had more modest transmission, we might see the effects, but it might be very hard to be sure that they're weather effects rather than control measure effects. Thank you. Um, next question. Hi. Uh, thank, thank you, Dr. Lipsitch. I appreciate you taking the time to, to meet with us. Um, you know, my question is about contact tracing and uh, really whether doing it halfway is better than not doing it at all. Uh, we're, we're trying to understand Florida's contact tracing strategy and whether it's sufficient. And the health department tells us they're hiring about 150 students to do it. And I don't know, is that level of effort better than nothing? Because I saw that New York City and Boston are hiring a lot more people and casting wider nets, not just the students. So, so the question I suppose is, is what's the right way to do it? And if we have limited resources, wh where do we focus? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And uh, I was just on a, on a grand rounds with Harvard Medical School this morning, and there was a lot of discussion about sort of what is the level of uh, effect we might get from contact tracing. Um, I tend to be somewhat on the pessimistic side uh, about contact tracing as a general control strategy. I think that it can be, uh, uh, well, I'll start, I'll end with my opinion and start with, with what we are more sure about. What we are pretty sure about is that uh, contact tracing works well when you have relatively few cases so that you have the resources to do it. Uh, and when you have uh, even fewer cases that are unknown. So when you're doing a good job of detecting most cases, so testing capacity is high relative to the case burden. Um, neither of those is true right now in most parts of the United States. As we just discussed with Massachusetts, we have a couple thousand cases we know about every day. And, and as the Chelsea study showed, probably quite a number of cases that we don't know about. Um, uh, and I think that's true in, in many other places. So I think the contact tracing in this current setting is gonna be a fairly modest contributor because, uh, because 
it quickly can overwhelm, especially 150 people in a state uh, as big as Florida sounds a little bit like Austin Powers in the million dollars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not sure. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have said that on on the record, but I did. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so I think uh, the, the it's easy to overwhelm a relatively um, constrained uh, group of people trying to do contact tracing, and it's because it's so resource intensive, uh, it diverts it diverts health public health effort from other activities. Um, uh, on the other hand, I think for certain settings like uh, like nursing homes or other settings where you really do need to try to identify exactly who's infected and try to stop transmission as much as possible, as fast as possible, you know, uh, then, then it can be very useful in a targeted sense of trying to protect a vulnerable population. Um, it's clear that you can do a lot of control if you do contact tracing really well. Uh, Singapore managed with mainly contact tracing for several months, but then eventually even Singapore uh, lost its control of the epidemic and had to uh, resort to social distancing types of measures. Um, so I think in conjunction with really aggressive measures to get case numbers down and, uh, and significant resources, contact tracing can be a useful piece of the piece of the control approach, but I think it's very challenging with an ongoing epidemic. Thank you, Dr. Lipsitz. I appreciate that. Next question. Hi, Dr. Lipsitz. Thanks so much for doing this. Um, so we, uh, my question is about the, the remaining mystery of the, the virus origin. Uh, and clearly there's um, a lot of questions about where it really came from. And it's that, that conversation has, of course, of course, also gotten politicized lately. And my question is, um, what what would a kind of healthy, transparent investigation look like? And and is there a precedent for international cooperation around you know finding a patient zero? Um, and yeah, what what and what what could the international community do now? You know, to collaboratively figure out the origin of this virus in in a hypothetical ideal yeah. way. Uh, that is a great question. Um, uh, I have been trying to stay out of that discussion, and uh, I will describe the reasons why I'm staying out of it, but then I'm going to stay more or less stay out of it. Um, as some of you may know, I have spent the last five years or so before COVID uh, being quite active in the effort to, um, to discourage funding of and performance of gain-of-function experiments, the experiments to enhance the contagiousness or the virulence of a, of a respiratory virus, mainly flu, but, but it also involves coronaviruses to some degree. Um, and uh, I think that at this point, we have a lot, of, um, a lot of immediate needs that the scientific community needs to do to address in a unified way to get to deal with the consequences of this epidemic. Um, 
the topic of uh, origins and um, and the policy implications uh, for what sorts of experiments should be done are important topics, and they're obviously very politicized and polarizing topics, as you described. Um, within the scientific community, the debate had, was quite polarizing, uh, even before it became sort of part of poly party politics or, or geopolitics. Um, for that reason, uh, I am very anxious to know the answer, and I hope that things will, uh, that processes will be undertaken. Um, and I'm going to try to stay out of this discussion and work together with colleagues, some of whom I strongly disagree with on those sorts of topics, uh, to deal with the with the problem before us. Uh, and perhaps we'll get back to that later. But I'm I'm going to dodge the question completely because I really want to focus on uh, on the immediate problem before us. Okay. Thank you. Next question. I wanted to just ask in general, you know, what you've seen from governors and states in terms of, you know, starting to reopen economies, you know, in general, do you feel like governors are, are going too fast or, or about right in terms of, you know, what, what the actions they've taken so far, given the level of transmission still going on, the level of testing that we have that's maybe not enough? I mean, what, what's your kind of overall sense of how fast things are going? Uh, I actually am not sure that I have a really good overview of how things are moving. My sense is that some of the southern states are opening. I know Georgia's opening up some particular industries or, or types of establishments uh, and some others in, in the southeast. Um, uh, but one of the consequences of this epidemic is that I'm less up on the news than I would like to be. Um, I, my overall impression is that nowhere is there very good testing, um, and that, and that there's, that in the absence of, of much better testing capacity, it's a dangerous thing to start lifting restrictions. Um, I'm perhaps a little less critical than some of my colleagues of those who are starting to reopen, because. I'm mindful that, you know, disease control is one exceedingly important piece of the puzzle, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle. Um, and while I tend to like the general policies of those who are being more cautious and therefore trust their, them more, uh, I, I do have to say that, that, you know, unemployment is bad for people's health, um, economic other economic problems in general are bad for people's health. And even if you only cared about health, uh, that wouldn't mean you only care about COVID. So I'm, uh, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the impulse to, as, as I think everyone is, to the impulse to try to open up. I don't think that it's uh, at this point that it, it's good public health advice to reopen in most parts of the United States because case numbers are high and testing is poor, and that's where we were a long time ago. And in particular, I think one thing that has been at least a, an idea I've heard expressed many times is, well, we, we've, we've reached the peak, and therefore it's time to reopen. But 
viruses don't know where they were in the past. They only know where they are in the present. And what I mean by that is if, if we had X number of cases per day at the start of imposing restrictions, and now we have a lot more than X cases per day, as seems to be the case in most places, but, we, but we've slowed down the increase, we're in a worse position now than we were then. We have more virus spreading right now than we did at that time, assuming that it's not all a testing artifact. And so there's not much logic in the idea that slowing down the growth is good enough and now we can reopen. It's the, the logic is in, is in reopening when the number of cases has come down sufficiently that we can expect that the growth that will result when we, op when we reopen is manageable and will not overwhelm our healthcare system. So if we were worried about it being overwhelmed uh, a month ago or a month and a half ago when the restrictions started and there are more cases per day now, then we should be more worried, not less. Um, is, there, is there a level of, of like an absolute level of cases in a state that you would look at and say, oh, if it goes below this many new cases a day, then that's a good sign for reopening or something like that? Yeah, we've been trying to, to think through that issue and, and some people have made proposals. Uh, I mean, in qualitative terms, the idea is that you should be able to tolerate a, you should have a level of cases such that if the level of cases went up by a large factor, say five or 10, it would not overwhelm the healthcare system because it's going to take, uh, and that you have a, um, enough testing and monitoring in place so that you think you can estimate how much the level of cases is going up uh, and calibrate the interventions to that rate of increase. Um, so those aren't hard numbers, but, they, but, but that's in part because it varies by your hospital capacity and your uh, testing capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so the, I mean, the, the setting, so to take, to take two examples, Massachusetts uh, is getting much better on testing and has more testing than many places, but still has uh, a, a large number per capita of cases, new cases per day and a large number of hospitalizations. Um, so I don't think we're there yet. The country of Austria with 8 million people, so about the same size roughly as Massachusetts, uh, is below 100 new cases a day, uh, has relatively good testing um, capacity, and is thinking seriously about opening up. They got, they stepped on the brakes earlier in their epidemic uh, than most other places because they had a big uh, outbreak in a ski resort and that brought attention. So they are, they are at a point where they could in fact deal with an upsurge in cases and uh, from their current levels, and and that's more more uh, sensible place to start thinking about reopening than than here. Got it. Thank you. Next question. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my question. My my question is actually related to the last one. Um, you're mentioning that you know you're not seeing a lot of uh, enough testing. So I guess. Um, what do you think is the best metric for evaluating that? Um, is that percent of positive tests or 
um, you know, a lot of people are throwing around these national numbers that we need to have 5 million tests per day, even 20 million tests per day. Others are saying we just need to double or maybe triple what we have currently. So what are your thoughts on, you know, those estimates and then how the, how, like, is there a better way of thinking about it rather than just like this national number? Um, yeah, I think uh, this is another thing I would like to have to form a better opinion, more better informed opinion on and haven't yet. Uh, I think, uh, but, but one thing to say for sure is that it's very much a local issue in that if there's a test available in another state, it doesn't do me any good uh, to a first approximation. And also, um, you know, it's very clear now from the zero surveys that very, very local conditions, even say within the Boston area, uh, lead to very different levels of infection and uh, disease. So, um, so I think these decisions uh, are very dependent on local conditions and uh, I hope to have a more quantitative answer before too long, but, but uh, I don't at the moment. Okay, and but I guess, do you have a general opinion on just the very, very high numbers, like 20 million tests per day? Is that completely out there? Or do you think that is something that we would need to see or only later? Uh, I think it depends on how far we get the number of cases down. Um, uh, um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know that I have, I'm going to, I'm going to pass on that one because I don't really have a good answer. Okay. Thank you. Next question. Hey, Mark. Um, wondering your thoughts on the antibody test that New York is doing right now. The state put a bunch of resources and time into getting this test developed, um, kind of going to be the key to the reopening, but now it looks like that's um, not going to be the case, not going to be a key metric. Uh, especially with what the World Health Organization said um, about there being no proof that that's going to prove immunity last week. Um, your thoughts on the effectiveness of that testing and how it should play into any reopening systems? Um, well, I think what the World Health Organization said correctly is that there's no evidence yet, but but everybody I know, <laughs> I know a particular set of the world, people in the world, but <laughs> almost everybody I know is working on trying to figure out how, how we're going to get that information. Um, uh, so I don't think it's a permanent state of ignorance. It's a, it's a current state of ignorance because this is a new disease and the studies to set that up to test that are actually quite challenging. And one of the things our lab is working on is the, the design and uh, analytic approaches to, to doing those studies. Um, and just to divert for briefly into that issue, um, you know, Everybody says with epidemiological studies that are observational, so you don't control uh, who has the exposure and who doesn't, but you just watch and see who has the exposure and who doesn't. Um, you know, if that's if that's uh, eggs per day and your outcome is heart disease, then you have to account for all the other potential causes of both egg eating eggs and eating and getting heart disease. So that's that's the usual problem in epidemiologic studies, and because these aren't because it's a natural infection that you get, uh, we have to, we have that same problem that we don't decide who gets which exposure. 
So it's the classic problem in epidemiology. What makes it particularly challenging in this case is that uh, what we call the exposure, the thing that you're trying to understand the effect of, and the outcome, the effect you're trying to understand, are the same thing. The exposure is infection now, and the outcome is infection later. And so when you're, when you're trying to list all the things that could cause both of those, there's a long list because people who, have, who work in a supermarket are uh, more likely to be exposed now and more likely to be exposed later than people who uh, work at home. And similarly, people who have good personal protective equipment uh, are less likely to be exposed now and later. So there's all sorts of uh, challenges in the design of these studies. Um, and so I think, I think personally that, that studies in healthcare workers where you have reasonably sized cohorts of people who have similar levels of exposure because they have the same job, for example, uh, and either work with COVID patients or don't knowingly work with COVID patients. Those are going to be the best, I think, studies to study seroprotection, but they haven't been, they're just being set up now. Um, so I think we will begin to know. Um, and uh, frankly, I also think that someplace is going to do the experiment without waiting for the data, uh, meaning do the experiment of sending people back to work with positive antibody tests, and that probably through that, if, if protection is really good or really lousy, we may just find it out that way through an uncontrolled experiment. Um, if it's in between and subtle, it may be harder to figure that out. But if hundreds of people are sent back because they have antibody positive tests to a place where there's a lot of, um, a lot of exposure, and none of them get infected, that will be indicative. And if, on the other hand, lots of them get infected, that will be infected, that will be indicative. So, you know, nobody could say that's an advisable thing to do, but, but the world being what it is, somebody's going to do it. Uh, and it wouldn't surprise me if the first data on zero protection come from somebody just deciding to find out the hard way using someone else's uh, exposure as the as the um, opportunity. Great, thanks. All right, next question. Hi, Doctor. Thanks for taking questions. Um, in the last week or two here in Washington, we've we've been hearing from Dr. Deborah Burks that what we really need on testing is going to be uh, some sort of rapid antigen test and. We've sort of gone through these cycles. First, everything was fixated on, on PCR capacity, then antibody tests, which have all the, the issues you discussed. Um, what's your view of, of the value of, of an antigen test? And uh, do you have any thoughts on why those seem to be slower uh, coming along in, in development? Yeah, I mean, I think a rapid test would, of course, be very valuable if it was accurate. Um, and the, the value would be that you could pretend, perhaps uh, you know, screen people as they walk into work or as they walk into school or, or something um, and have the answer soon enough to act on that day. Um, uh, I'm not an expert on these kinds of tests. I do know just from my own experience that uh, when I needed a flu test, I, I looked it up 
to see what the what kinds of tests were available and went to the local pharmacy because I was traveling and didn't have uh, an easy way to get a, a PCR test. And if I remember correctly, the, the sensitivity of the flu antigen test is something like 70%. Mm. Um, so that's not particularly great. Uh, and uh, I don't know the technical challenges of, of a new test for, for this particular virus, but um, but the trade-off, I think, would be the sensitivity compared to the uh, to the um, speed. So I think, indeed, it's an important thing to try to develop, and and there's now I think money to do that. Um, but uh, PCR is also an important part of it, and and uh, I think we shouldn't lose sight of the need to scale up the ability to do PCR testing or some kind of virus testing that, that looks at the genetic material. It could be sequence-based testing or other approaches. But I think one thing that's really clear about testing is the, the type of testing you need um, is, is dependent on what it is you're trying to do. So actually, maybe I'll share my screen. I, I made a slide for a talk I'm giving tomorrow. Um, See if it lets me share. It should. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I made the screen, this slide for a, a talk tomorrow, um, and it's it's pretty much out of my head. This is not like a, the WHO official target product profile, but um, there is a there is a process by which, when you're trying to develop a test or a vaccine or a, a medical countermeasure, you you make a list of the properties you would like. Uh, it to have, and then whether which ones of those are essential and which ones of those are are sort of uh, preferred but not essential. Um, and so, just to start a discussion, this is again not nothing official, but this is just from my head. Uh, this is a list of the things you might care about in a in a viral test. Uh, you want low false negative rates. You want high false positive rates. You want speed. You want to be able to do lots of tests per day and get the results back to the individual. You want to use few reagents. You want to use few swabs. Uh, you, want it, you might want it to be quantitative to say how much virus and not just uh, whether it's there or not. And you might want it to be detecting infectious virus and not just the genetic material or the antigen. Um, and so this, is, this grid sort of suggests in which cases you would care more about some of these properties than others. So three of the reasons why you use uh, viral testing are for diagnosing individuals the first time and you know just detecting who's, who's got it and who doesn't, and then maybe for isolation and quarantine purposes, another purpose is for patient care during the course of the illness, and a third purpose is for surveillance to figure out just generally how much uh, infection is in the community. And without going through all these grid squares, you can see that uh, that you need more of these things for uh, for initial diagnosis because you don't really have time to wait all day uh, or several days to find out if you're trying to do contact tracing or or exclude someone from work or the like. For patient care, you need many of these things, uh, um, and for surveillance, you can put up with some uh, weaknesses. So it's it's not so much we need one kind of test or another. It's really for certain types of, uh, of, of 
of applications, we need we need tests with particular uh, characteristics, and speed uh, is of course most critical for the test and trace or for uh, other case-based interventions. And so I think what Dr. Burks was probably referring to is that for that purpose, it would really be valuable to have a, a speedy test, but it also has to be sensitive uh, and specific. Did you have a follow-up question? It sounds like, um, and I just want your thoughts. I mean, it sounds like there, there's going to be a testing regimen or flow chart or um, that, that businesses or or are you know, institutions will have to decide, you know, the right test at the right time. Is that what, what we should be expecting to see? Yeah, I think so. And, and I would say I, I haven't yet heard anyone who has a, an algorithm for, you know, if you're going to open up your business, who do you test? How often do you test? What do you do with a positive? What do you do with a negative? What do you do with the contacts of the positives? Uh, I mean, what you do with the negative is pretty clear, <laughs> but what you do with the positives, uh, what do you do with their contacts is still being worked through by everybody that I've talked to. I don't think anybody's completely got that one sorted out yet. Okay. Thank so you. It needs to be obviously for the back to work question. Next question. Yeah, uh, so this is not a new question, but since it remains unknown, I just would like your latest take on the total number of cases now, or rather the, the multiplier or the range of multipliers atop the uh, number of diagnosed cases. Yeah, uh, I think it's, it's so local that it's really hard to give a number because we don't know the, the local number in most, almost any place in the world. Um, I think the the numbers coming out from a place like New York are probably very reliable in most the most reliable they're not perfectly reliable because uh, the major problem with these numbers is with these serologically based numbers, which I think is the ultimate answer is that the serologically based numbers uh, suffer badly when 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 they're low, meaning they're very inaccurate when they're low because test specificity limitations can totally swamp any signal. Um, so I think the Santa Clara numbers, for example, are almost not quite meaningless, but very close to meaningless um, because there's, because almost all of it could be false positives, maybe even all of it, although we know there were a thousand cases, so it couldn't be all of it, but, but nothing about the data excludes the possibility that it's almost all false positives. In New York, it, clearly the test is not giving 15 or 20% false positives. And so the numbers are much more reliable. Um, on the other hand, New York also has much better testing for every uh, of other kinds. And so the multiplier might be lower in New York than it is somewhere else. So uh, I think it's really only meaningful at this point to give numbers that are that are local. And then as we build up a bunch of case studies of local numbers in places with high prevalence, um, then, then we might be able to make generalizations about the country. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, sec second question, um, there's a lot of optimism now about at least two vaccine efforts. Um, we know that vaccines are notoriously difficult to sort of wrestle to the ground and, and 
things can go, you know, something that seems promising can, can completely flop uh, yeah. in the clinical trial. So what, what's your sense whether um, we might actually have a vaccine in mass production um, come this fall? Uh, I think it's like, like many other people, it's hopeful, but, but cautiously, but only cautiously hopeful. Um, I mean, I think, as you say, there's the Moderna and the Oxford vaccines that are, that are the furthest ahead and they're, um, uh, you know, I think if I had to put a, guess on it, I would maybe give it 20% chance that maybe 20% for each of them being more optimistic um, that they get through to that point with, with no problems. And that's sort of based on the fact that uh, about a third to a half of vaccines in the old fashioned progression from uh, phase two to phase three to approval fail near the late stage. Um, and these are less tested than those other ones. So, you know, being very, very rough, I would say maybe together there's a one in three chance that, that one of them is, is good enough. Um, maybe one in two, if we're really lucky. Um, and then, and then the, the, the production has to be scaled up. Uh, and I think one of the really uh, challenging topics will be uh, how the distribution of that happens because um, uh, there's going to be an awful lot of both political and economic uh, pressures on on who gets access to those vaccines but um, you know that's a that number is about it's probably worth about what you paid for it <laughs> but but I think uh, that's sort of where I, I am right now in my level of optimism. Um, and you know they're both very uh, advanced um, organizations that are doing lots of great work, and and I'm really hope that that uh, the optimism is the optimism side is the one that comes out. But uh, we will have to see. Thank you. Appreciate that. Next question. Looking at the article or at the issue of how in Colorado our state home order just. Uh, this ended uh, this past week, and so we're looking back at how effective social distancing and, and some of those measures were in the first weeks of the pandemic. Um, and apologies if you've already addressed this, um, but I mean, it, is there any sense for, I mean, is there any data, any analytics that have shown how effective these measures have been elsewhere in the nation? Are there any good metrics that you like to rely on for that type of analysis? And um, how much of a challenge, frankly, has the lack of testing been in trying to really get some good data on that, I ask because we've, there's been a lot of skepticism out here on the cost benefit of, of that type of, a, of those measures. And so just wanting to get some outside perspective on that. I think that the, um, that every place that has imposed them almost has seen a slowing of the growth of cases. And some places, uh, Austria is just some data that I happened to look at yesterday, uh, has seen a real decline in cases. Um, other places seem to be, be flat, but not, but not going down like Massachusetts, as we discussed. Um, so, uh, I mean, I think it's, I think the one thing that we have learned is that 
intense uh, intense social distancing can slow the spread of this virus. Uh, we saw that comparing what happened in Wuhan to what happened in other parts of China. We saw that um, comparing across countries and, and we have seen that because in, in the United States, because most places or, or many places have, have measurably slowed transmission and uh, limited testing does reduce your ability to quantify that, but it doesn't, but, but to the extent that testing has been getting better over time, uh, if anything, you should be detecting a higher fraction of cases and therefore uh, it should look worse than it is. Um, so the fact that it's flattened out in many places uh, seems like pretty compelling evidence that, uh, that it works. Um, so that's kind of my, my general uh, take. I don't know if you'd like further discussion. I appreciate it, thanks. <clears throat> Are there any, um, the thing is in terms of, of modeling, a lot of, um, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, just the different models and, and kind of where, where we're at um, in terms of how, how we stack up with the initial predictions of, of the virus. Um, I mean, is there, is, are there any certain models that you like to clue on a little bit more than others by chance and, and some that you've, you've found to be a little more, um, uh, I guess, noteworthy? Um, it's a long, it's a, it's a long answer. I mean, I think I've, I've been saying for a while that people make, sometimes make analogies between weather model, weather prediction and, and infectious disease prediction. And, and there, there are some such analogies. The, the key difference in my mind is that weather, we can't change the weather. Uh, even with a Sharpie, we can't change the weather as much as we would sometimes like to. And so any, so any prediction of what the weather is going to do is, is a prediction of what the weather is going to do that can be tested and nobody has the excuse, well, I was assuming that nobody was going to stay home or everybody was going to stay home because that doesn't affect the weather. With infectious diseases, the predictions cause people's behavior to change. Other things cause people's behavior to change. And the, the, the weather, the, the infectious disease models really are if-then statements. They're not, they're not predictions. They're predictions that if such and such happens, then such and such uh, is the likely range of outcomes. Um, and so I would distinguish more between, I mean, I think there are some models that are more uh, reliable than others, but but really crucial and sort of swamping the details of most of those models is the time frame over which they're they're looking and the number of uh, and the assumptions about what happens. So, um, uh, I think there are some uh, some questions about, for example, how many undetected cases you think there are and how much that leads to buildup of immunity faster than we expect. Um, and those are all limitations of almost every model. But, um, but the, the more important aspect uh, to me is that uh, just to take the imperial model, which is one of the, one of the better um, tested and, and better known models, um, uh, most of the criticism has been that of that model has been uh, that it, under the unmitigated scenario, projected a very large number of deaths, and that in fact we've had a small number compared to that of deaths, 
but of course those deaths uh, have been under a mitigated scenario and that's exactly mm. what the model predicted. Um, so I think I put more stock in models that are a mechanistic, meaning they take into account infectious disease transmission dynamics, which is essentially all the prominent models except for the IHME one. Um, and B are calibrated to data and uh, and um, and try to account for uh, the uncertainties in that data appropriately uh, and to to sort of tie themselves to the most uh, reliable of those data. Um, and then the last thing I would say, and one reason that we have not uh, as a group tried to make detailed long-term projections uh, about numbers of cases and numbers of deaths and those kinds of things is that almost all, very many models can, can fit the short-term trend in a period when there's a uh, relatively large number of susceptible people. The differences, the large differences in predictions in models come from how many cases those models believe have happened uh, that we didn't detect, and therefore how fast is herd immunity building up, what is the peak number of cases, uh, and what is the, what is the timing of that. Um, and so one of the challenges is that until we get better serology, there are lots of models that fit the data in the short term, and some of them are going to be way more right than others in the long term. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay, I think that looks like our last question. Um, Dr. Lipsich, do you have any final words before we end the call? Uh, no, thanks. Thanks, everybody. It was a good discussion, and uh, um, look forward to doing it again sometime soon. This concludes the April 30th press conference.